Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Film. I am your host, Joel Cherney. Today, I'll be speaking with Richard Backstrom and Todd Myers, authors of Realizing the Witch, Science, Cinema, and the Mastery of the Invisible, published in 2015 by Fordham University Press. In the book, the two anthropologists review the historical concepts of witchcraft using the silent film Hexen, written and directed by Benjamin Christensen. Welcome to Richard Backstrom and Todd Myers. Hi, Richard. It's great to talk to you. Excellent to be here. Thank you. And also you, Todd. Thanks for having us. Well, one of the great things about current academic publishing is that we have books like yours devoted to a fascinating but largely unknown film and its production. Let's talk first about your backgrounds and writings. Richard, where are where have you been over your uh, career that has basically led you up to this point? Well, uh, I started my more, I guess, traditional ethnographic focus in Malaysia, and I was writing about urban life and the transformation of uh, cities and city life in Southeast Asia, particularly in Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia. Uh, And that doesn't really seem like it has much to do with leading to uh, writing about a 1920s Scandinavian witchcraft film, but I think uh, because we had a very, uh, you know, sort of interdisciplinary and broad kind of focus in our uh, in our training, Todd and I actually, you know, we saw this film first together when we were graduate students. We were both, uh, tra- you know, anthropologists and scholars in training, and so uh, the pursuit of something related to creative art um, wasn't necessarily. Uh, something that was uh, beyond what we were what we were interested in, even though in my case my my focus on the surface was a bit different but i 've always uh, you know also engaged more directly in creative arts and um, film in particular, and actually still do so even even now so it's it 's a somewhat uh, winding path i would say um, but it does it makes sense to me i don 't know if it makes sense to others but uh but i 'm you know that 's kind of where i 'm coming from i guess. Well, multidisciplinary is is a good term that's being used pretty regularly these days in the educational community, and I think it's actually made for better better scholarly work among everyone because uh, it is such an important aspect. Where are you now currently? You're teaching now, or yes, I I teach at the University of Edinburgh, so I live in Scotland, and uh, you know, sort of pursuing uh, all sorts of programs, uh, including a lot with uh, with the art school here. Uh, which is part of the University of Edinburgh now, and so this uh, this is also becoming a part of what I do in terms of what I teach and trying to get some programs together to kind of uh, actualize and extend some of this uh, interdisciplinary work that uh, the book represents that Todd and I have have done it together and, uh, you know, kind of take that in some other directions as well. So that's what I'm doing at the moment, I guess. Okay. So, Todd, obviously, Richard mentioned you've known each other quite a while, uh, and I know you're not in uh, Scotland. You are uh, uh, in Asia. 
So what is your background? And, and I, like I said before, I know obviously he mentioned briefly that you've uh, known each other quite a while. So where are you standing as far as your education and what you're doing now? So, well, just to kind of follow the same thread that Richard was sort of drawing out, which was, you know, my background is is really focused on medical anthropology. So my interest is in kind of contemporary ethnography as it, you know, is, is used to sort of better understand health and illness. Um, I do a lot of work in the States still. Um, I'm also very interested in the history of medicine. And in fact, actually, I mean, when I think about this book um, and try to kind of work backwards into what the influences and kind of what the, the continuities between parts of my training and leading up to this book are, I always think about, you know, uh, Christensen's interest in 19th century, late 19th century photography and, and writings in psychiatry. And that seems like a very clean line, but in fact, actually, um, I mean, my original training's in art. So I, I studied as a painter, as an undergraduate, was always interested in film. Richard and I went to graduate school together. This is one of a thousand films we watched together. Um, it's probably one of a thousand films that we could probably sit down and write a similar text. So of course, there's there's some kind of particularities to this text or to this film that you know demands a certain treatment in the in the writing. That hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about that as well. Um, but Richard and I also did. You know, we we made haunted houses when we were in graduate school. <laughs> um, and so part of the genealogy of this book is a very focused and very dedicated commitment to our yearly graduate student haunted houses in the basement of my Baltimore row house. Um, and I think in fact, actually it was our work in the haunted house that uh, led us to Christensen and maybe appreciated some of his set designs and costuming even more as a amateur haunted house um, proprietors. Well, we did used to, we used to act in the haunted houses as well. So you know we would become characters and try to take up the position of uh, you know somebody possessed, somebody uh, who's committed murder, somebody who might commit murder. You know they were haunted houses for adults, and so uh, it was it was a fairly full on commitment, I would say, to uh, the supernatural and the strange. That uh, and and like Christensen, we starred in our own productions. I mean, we didn't play Satan or Christ, but still, I mean, you know, we started in our own productions and, and I think in part, this was, this was the school play element of our inspiration. It's funny as I, as Todd and I were talking before the interview, I'm actually from Cleveland, Ohio. I live in Kentucky now by way of Alabama, but, um, we, when we were growing up, we did haunted houses for Halloween. We we used to decorate the house for Halloween and actually made the newspaper once about what we do every year. And it's very <laughs> sounds very similar, except it was just one day and it was the house itself and we built a coffin, the whole thing. I mean, that was just so I I guess that means there's a certain similarity among the three of us as far as that well, kind of thing is concerned. Mm -hmm. And Christensen did the same thing, except he just made the most expensive film in Scandinavia at the time to do it. So you know, and it took him X number of years, three plus. Yes, I mean, so, we, we certainly could have used his budget, but I think, uh, you know, uh, definitely what, what, this allowed us, uh, what this allowed us to do, I mean, this does link us back methodologically in a certain sense to what we try to do in anthropology, which is not necessarily 
uh, in Malinowski's words, uh, unproblematically take up the position of, of the quote unquote, the native or the other. But but we did try to, you know, understand this from an affective point of view as well. It's a and ethnography does, uh, as a kind of matter, of course, demand this kind of engagement. And we felt that we could actually take this in, in a very different direction and talk about a film and talk about, you know, different forms of visual culture and scholarly sources in a way that uh, that requires us to be caught by them and to embrace them and to express them in a way that might be somewhat different from uh, approaches, other kinds of approaches to to this specific kind of material. So actually, actually it made perfect sense for us to to act it out and then yeah. to express it in the way that we do, you know. I mean, we're, we're very specific in the beginning of the, of the book. I mean, we talk about, you know, our treatment of Christensen's film as, you know, it, it, we treat the film anthropologically and also cinematically. And that anthropological part isn't just from our, you know, respective uh, disciplines or backgrounds. It really is this, as Richard already said, this kind of animation you know, this affective register by which Christensen, you know, constructed his film, acted it out, you know, circulated it after its production. We were really interested in all of those forms um, that took shape. And so we were not just treating it as a cinematic object. We're really trying to treat it through this anthropological lens. And I think that was, I mean, that wasn't by design as much as, you know, just part of the spirit of, I think, our shared um, sensibilities about, how we like to engage with film anyways. And also, you know, the kind of relationship to our own respective um, intellectual and fieldwork projects. So, I mean, that really, I mean, how we treat Christensen's film, I feel like it's how we've been treating film for a long time. Although there's just some, there's something about Christensen's project that, you know, just really drew us in immediately. Well, I think any film that, um, especially at this period of time, I mean, that's one of the things that is so unusual about Hexen is that it was made so early in the history of motion pictures. And we and the concept of a film that had a longer length and um, actually tried to present a point other than just, you know, the old show the picture of the somebody, you know, the film of somebody riding a horse, which wasn't too far before this. That's what makes it unusual in many ways, since it's so early in the history of motion pictures. How do, let's let's see if we can briefly set that. I mean, the film was released. Uh, I think uh, the last I, the part I saw was 1922, but he'd been working on it for quite a long period of time. So, what was unusual, groundbreaking as far as the filmmaking aspects before we start talking about the content? Richard, what was unusual here? <laughs> okay, well, I'll give it a shot. You you fill in what I what I okay. forget, but I. I mean, yes, I think, um, Joel, you've identified uh, some of the aspects of what is unusual about it in its, uh, you know, sort of feature length uh, treatment of uh, a nonfiction subject. And and yet the sort of, uh, you know, the bringing of scientific and historical sources, uh, the sort of elaborate reenacting and the use of certain kinds of techniques that we by the end of the 1920s become a, a, a bit more normal to see in films or, uh, you know, the, the way in which close-ups are used, the way in which, uh, you know, the, the film is edited and moves along. All of this, I think, is really quite ahead of its time. So it's quite ahead of its time in terms of its claim that you can do nonfiction in this way. And there's no such thing as documentary as yet. Documentary doesn't, as a term, 
or as a genre, doesn't really come into being until 1926 or later, when uh, John Grierson uses that term. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, Christensen is very committed to uh, rendering truth on film, and he, at the same time, is not shy about using the all of the instruments at hand in the creation of the image. I mean, the sound is kind of ambiguous in silent film for obvious reasons, but in terms of the creation of the image and a narrative that can be drawn out of that image or a series of images, um, there's really, you know, there's really nothing exactly like it. Now, 1922 is also the year that a film like Nanook of the North comes out, which actually is innovative in some similar ways. But I would say that Christensen's project is, is in some ways, you know, even more ambitious in its uh, aspiration to actually innovate not only uh, the, the sort of our understanding, a popular understanding of witchcraft and of hysteria, but also just our, our ways of receiving film. And, you know, this was one of the things that we couldn't believe when we really started to get into uh, learning more about this film was that this film is largely ignored in, in the popular sort of narrative of how cinema uh, develops and comes into being, not just nonfiction cinema, but cinema as such. I mean, at best, there would be references to Hexen as a kind of wacky early film that maybe, you know, maybe you could get a kick out of or maybe not, but it's never, it was never really taken seriously uh, as, as a cinematic object or as uh, a landmark in the history of cinema. And so some of our motivation was fairly straightforward in that we felt that this was a, a, an omission in our understanding of the history of cinema. And we, you know, we, we saw a place to sort of join into that conversation and, and provide something uh, about a film that really should be known and talked about much more and increasingly is. Uh, ironically, uh, nearly 100 years after its release, people are finally actually starting to watch this film again. And so um, those are some of the reasons. I don't know, I'm sure I forgot something. Todd, what are you? No, I, I think that's uh, right. And there's, there's something else here. One of the issues with the, with even talking about the film in the terms of in, in terms of innovation, it, it's so difficult. If you take, for instance, a film eighteen ninety six demolition of a wall, and you say, well, Christensen's using those same techniques, you know, in certain scenes in his film, so he's not really innovating. But it's not it's not that he's developing unique techniques or special effects. It's that's really not where the value of his of his intervention lies. It's that he weaves these things together so masterfully over the course of this very, very long film. And we never get, in fact, actually, we never get the gimmickiness of, if that's a word, gimmickiness, the gimmickiness of these particular special effects. They're always in service of this narrative. They're always, they're always driving his, his, his thesis. And, and we have little things like very special things, which are so uncharacteristic of a director who's coming from a uh, from a theatrical and operatic tradition, where he's using things like ex these extreme close-ups, and we talk about this in detail in the film in the book. Um, he's using these techniques that, in fact, actually kind of they betray the idea that it's just you know a, a theatrical production, and he's focusing on these individual characters developing you know what seems to be a kind of thesis on their inner thoughts and and you know motivations and their sufferings and we we see him using these techniques in such a powerful way that i i mean i've watched the film now too many bloody times but you know 
I, I tend to forget um, that, that this is something incredibly special in the moment in, in 1922. And so I think it's that, it's that ability to, to, you know, to use these very techniques, which of course are not of his own design necessarily, um, but to use them in a way that, that is um, so seemingly effortless. Of course, we do see the seams kind of come apart at certain moments in the film. Um, but it, it, it's always, nothing is superfluous. It's always, you know, part of the thesis, you know, he's not just using techniques to use techniques that I think is part of the, the innovation and the, the real, like the demonstration of mastery on his part as a filmmaker. Of course, he's trying to master other things as well, which of course we talk about in the book, but um, I'll leave, I'll leave it there and, and tag back to Richard. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'll just add one thing about that because it would seem that the, the use of these techniques and special effects would rule out Hexen as uh, as a legitimate nonfiction film, and for many people, that you know, that immediately kind of comes to mind. Like, how is this really possible? But yeah. uh, but because he's he's trying to give us some sense of what it means to to be confronted by the witch or to be confronted as a witch, uh, and you know, an empirical element of what the being of the witch was in the 16th or 17th century, for example, uh, was that you would see and feel things that you, that were impossible, right? The impossibility of this, which we get in the accounts in the contemporary accounts in witch trials and confessions and so on. Uh, you know, this becomes a kind of solid, hard evidence for the presence of a witch or the operations of witches. And Christensen actually, uh, while he is trying to thrill his audience, this is actually empirically sound as a technique. Uh, and this is one, one element of the, of the film that I think uh, makes it innovative as a nonfiction film or as a proto-documentary film, which is that the special effect is actually part of the evidence. And yeah. uh, that's, you know, that's not something that people had necessarily noticed or taken seriously before. Uh, so just as an example, right, uh, you know, it really takes a lot of thought uh, and a great mastery of your, of your craft to actually see that through in a way that's credible. Yeah. Well, I would, to date it, okay, the film came, he started working on the film in the late 19-teens, I guess that's the way we put it. Uh, Birth of a Nation came out in 1915, which is usually considered to be one of the first modern style uh, films, so we use that as a guideline for, in case there's a question as to where this fits into that. But, I, it's interesting from your discussions, from just what you've talked about. Um, I, it's hard to sit, use this word for a film that's so big as this film is, but the subtleties are there. There's a lot of subtlety that, that obviously in any good film you want to watch multiple times to pick up things, and this definitely is an example of a film that uh, has quite a bit of subtlety to it. And, and it's some of it's the technical part and some of it's just the way he... He presents his information. Of course, there's also the, even today, documentaries that have reenactments in them are still yes. considered to be controversial. So, and of course, sure. in his case, he couldn't find original footage of any sort. So, of course, he had to, <laughs> if he was going to do it, he had to reenact. So, um, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the Errol Morris of witchcraft. Right. So, reenactments are, are, are considered to be a normal aspect of documentary even now with documentaries it's just a matter of of how they're used and 
obviously any documentary that's not just meant there as a travel log or as a you know a, an educational film is meant to, to to tell a story or make a point, and you have to use the evidence that you have in order to make that point. So can I just add just sort of one point of clarification though? So he gets the money from from the Swedes in 1919, mm -hmm. and he disappeared. I mean. The, the Danish filmmaker gets the money from the Swedes in 1919 and then disappears for a while. And the film comes out in 1922. But there, there's the, the timeline gets a little bit fuzzy between the time that the, you know, the, the Swedish Film Institute gives him money to buy back his, his studio in Copenhagen from creditors, um, paying off past debts, um, going to Paris to do some research on Charcot's, you know, Salpetriere and, and, and really kind of basically walking alongside these psychiatrists and others who were his acolytes. I mean, it's his, the labor of this film is not just the set designs and not just the production. I mean, so much of the energy and I imagine finances went into, went into his research and this is what we found so extraordinary as well. We knew that the film was well-researched, that it took so long to make. We didn't quite, I don't think, I, I mean, I can't speak for Richard, but I don't think I fully appreciated the, the um, intensity of that, of that research in the beginning and how long it took and how bold <laughs> it is to take people's money and to disappear for a little while and do research for not just this film, but for two others that were never made, but were meant to follow. So the timeline of his film and how he uses his resources um, is, and we talk about this in the introduction to the book, I think it's an important part of the story because it, it also gives you a little, even though we're not just writing a biography of Christensen, it does give you a sense of the, um, the seriousness of the task he's undertaking and also the risk. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that this is quite true. And, and, and Christensen actually does, you know, I mean, he does engages in very, very concerted and disciplined scientific labor. Uh, we could call it. I mean, you know, if we're linking things like uh, historical studies to, to something that's a, you know, that has an aspiration to touch on uh, objectivity or science or that sort of thing. Uh, but he expands well beyond that to have some basic understanding of neurology, of uh, developing Freudian psychoanalysis, and a whole host of um, domains of knowledge, you could say, that that's required to make this film. And so, yeah, the intensity of his of his study, he basically disappears, not not really to do fieldwork exactly like a, a traditional anthropologist would, but uh, but he definitely studies up, uh, and I think that. You know, like Todd, I didn't I didn't really fully grasp this until we tried to follow the, the threads that he provides for us in the film uh, just to sort of get a handle on, you know, particularly uh, at, in the first chapter of the film where he more or less lays out all of his sources and notes. It's kind of like a uh, you know, it's it's like a manuscript in reverse and that the notes come before the, the, the narrative, so to speak, yeah. and just tracing through. Uh, all of the, all of that source material to try to in in some coherent way just to know just to keep it straight as these images uh, and examples come by on the screen uh, just what's going on there and that actually took quite a lot of effort on our part because uh, you know we're not ourselves trained as uh, you know early modern historians or anything of the sort and so there was a lot of studying up for us as well 
that um, that we needed to do. And I think that's a testament to just how, you know, how good he was at what he was doing, even though uh, he wasn't necessarily recognized or trained or had a qualification in any of these disciplines. This was still a time in 1922 that, um, you know, I'll use this word advisedly, but that amateur intellectuals could still engage in this kind of work and be taken seriously. Uh, I'm not so sure there's room for that nowadays, and perhaps there is in some disciplines and not others, but I think that he he takes advantage a little bit of his time in coming to this in a way that um, he's not, in, in our terms today, qualified to do, and yet he masters, um, you know, so beautifully and so obviously, even for uh, experts trained in the field. Well, and of course, he also made sure that not only is it obviously meant to be a, a, a film to be shown, but he also presented as part of the film, and you actually included in the book, all of his sources. So that he went down and documented exactly what he used in order to pull the material together. So he clearly documented, you know, he cited his sources, to use a phrase, very carefully to make sure that everybody understood where, he, you know, how he was creating it. It wasn't one of those things where he was saying things without trying to back them up. You know, yes, the, yes, that's precisely right. And uh, I think, you know, that's quite, quite deliberate uh, and related to his claim that, you know, this is, in fact, a nonfiction film. I, I am making a statement about the world that can be assessed as, as, uh, as truth, you know, or at least at, in relation to something real in the world, uh, which is quite a, an extraordinary claim to make when, when you first come across the film or when you just uh, read a description of the film, a film about uh, the witch craze, about witches. Um, it, it seems... It seems contradictory, uh, and he's very disciplined in expressing how, in fact, this is not so. It is not contradictory. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I can't remember the last time I went to a film and was handed a bibliography for the film before we started watching. I mean, there's something there's yeah. something about that act. <laughs> Could you imagine showing up and getting a program and you look inside and it's, you know, <laughs> I mean, he is he is a bit of an obsessive. I mean, only an obsessive could make make this film. I mean, whenever I, you know, speak in public about the book and I always start with, you know, a kind of stock phrase, which is, you know, uh, Benjamin Christensen's Hexen is a film born of an obsession. And then I go on to say, and, you know, the book Realizing the Witch is also born of an obsession and it, and it seems like it's the same obsession. And, you know, it's, that's, that's kind of the way I feel about it. I don't know. We well, sort any, of do the same. Yeah, any, yeah. any true work of art, I mean, we can talk about just in the film industry, how many films were works of obsession as well as love, labors of love. And, and I mean, you know, you can point at very ones and we want to even use somebody who I sometimes I'm looking at some of your descriptions of Christensen and the first person the first name that came to my mind was Orson Welles. The got the concept of an obsessive mind that also has details and and wants to break new ground and things like and that. The, right, the theatricality of it all. Well, let's let's define a little bit mostly because we've been, you know, we've spent the first part of this just talking background and I think it's clear that especially for people who haven't seen the film, which is going to be most people probably at first who's listening to this. Um, the film itself is broken down into seven parts. The word hexen, based on the descriptions that I saw, means the witch, so or witch. So obviously right. the, the film is meant to describe or present witchcraft as a topic. 
And as you pointed out, it's been, it was developed as nonfiction, what we probably would call documentary today. And as I say, it's seven parts, but this first part, and you mentioned it briefly a second ago, the first part is an introductory section that's pure exposition with a lot of diagrams and things. It literally is a, almost a classroom lecture in which he mm -hmm. presents most, and then most of the rest of the film is dramatic formats, so little vignettes, and then also, but there's a clear line that goes through the entire film, which of course is presented in the last part, which he then comes into modern times and presents what he compares, his main point, which was that witchcraft as a concept was an example of how people were being, who had unusual traits or issues or mental problems or other kinds of problems, were treated as far as what he calls hysteria. Right. So, do I, I think I hit the base. Yeah, that, 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 sound, that, that sounds like a that pretty... That sounds like the film. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I just wanted to make sure I had that all out since we've been talking a lot of background, yeah. so I wanted to make sure we talked about that. But let's go back then to the beginning. Um, that first part, which each... By the way, each part, if I read correctly, each part basically equals one reel of film. Is that basically correct, the way I understood it? Uh, yes, I think that's more or less the case. You know, they, they would uh, they would need to change the reels, and it wouldn't they wouldn't want to be doing that in, you know, in the middle of the chapter. So it roughly it yeah, I think it roughly times out that way. Yeah. Okay. So part one, then, like I said before, is where he explains everything from the beginning, and what what is he? What is he, because like I said before, he comes through and uses that. So what is he showing in that first part? Richard, you want to? <laughs> okay. What is he showing? I mean, well, I think in the broadest sense, what he's showing us is, are his sources. And so everything that comes later in, in a dramatic form uh, is grounded in the evidence that we have, uh, you know, that he had in, in 1922, uh, to to make that reenactment and to make that claim, and the evidence consists primarily of 16th century visual culture that depicted uh, the operations of the witch, the uh, Satan's presence in the world, uh, witch trials and tests that would might be you know administered to determine whether or not a person had been bewitched or was engaged in witchcraft. Uh, we have an exposition of the tools, which occurs in the beginning, but then, you know, throughout the film, there that's referred back to. So there's a, you know, some technical elements in there. Uh, and I think, you know, I think he's trying to do two things in this section, which is number one, to 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 ground the legitimacy of what comes later, in a sense. To uh, you know, since we in a film, we can't be flipping back and forth between what we're reading in the, in the main text and where the footnotes are, he's going to have to kind of like give us all of that up front. Otherwise it, you know, you know, the, the audience will not stay with what he's trying to do or they'll regard it in a way that I think he would have felt uh, as incorrect, which is that this is a, a kind of a fantasy. Uh, so he's, you know, I think he's really trying to set, uh, set up the film in a number of different ways by doing this. And this is a risky strategy because the first chapter is not the most, scintillating chapter in the film it's actually quite baffling um to begin this way uh considering how most documentary films or just most films in general begin so when i show this film to my students for example uh, i teach a film and anthropology course where i show this film um, as part of the course 
and they're they're just kind of stunned even after the first chapter because they they really don't know why he's doing this and it only becomes obvious later uh, as to what he's doing um there is a little bit of evidence as to the intensity of what the experience of the witch was and is i think uh so some of the mechanisms and some of the more outlandish elements of the first chapter i think it seems a little bit like a gimmick at times, you know, the sort of the mechanically operating version of hell that he displays, for example, uh, that that doesn't necessarily seem to perform quite the same function. But I think that it does, because I think it's that affective sense that he's also trying to weave in as part of the legitimate evidence for how people reacted to witchcraft or responded to it and how it actually remains not so much as as witchcraft uh, unchanged from the 16th century, but how the power of the witch can detach itself from that figure and and attach to other figures like the possessed or like the hysteric. So there's elements of that as well, but that only becomes obvious as we get into the the later chapters, really. I mean, that that first chapter is such a wonderful preview because it's, I mean, in fact, actually he's showing, like, here is how, 16th century Europeans and others imagined hell or Satan. Here's how it was represent that imagination was represented. And this, of course, is the same labor that he's going to engage in later in the film, you know, where he's going to, you know, help us imagine and then, of course, later help us believe. Um, but I think it's important also that those those mechanical images. I mean, he's an- this is also a preview of what he's up to. He's going to animate these things. He's going to. You know, he's going to make these things living for you. And he begins by making these really meticulous and, you know, they're completely drenched in smoke. And, you know, you see, you know, the fires of hell and brimstone, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But it's the first moment in which he begins to animate things. And yet he's still in this mode of professor because we see a pointer come into the scene and, you know, literally point to elements of the the images um, that, that he's presenting and it's so didactic and so humorous when I, when I, I show this film as well. And every time people kind of giggle uncomfortably, like what is this genre that we're, we're witnessing? What is this thing? Um, and so all that first, that first chapter, despite the fact that it is so didactic, that it's just this kind of long inventory of, of representations of everything from early hysteria to you know scenes of hell to the idea of the egyptian notion of the underworld which of course he recreates in his studio which only comes on screen for three seconds but i mean he's filled his entire studio space to recreate this um it's it's a very disrupting chapter because you really don't know what you're getting into um and you don't it's like is this exactly what's going to come is it going to be more of the same is this a setup and we have no idea at this point. So I find it in some ways like the, the first chapter, despite the fact that it is probably the most boring chapter, it is also the most, most disorienting. Um, it's really, it's fascinating to rewatch it again and again. Well, yeah, what- I can. Oh, sorry. I, I'll just give a brief example of, of the, how this, you know, the first chapter also works. It does kind of sort, sort people out in the audience. I mean, we, yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, for real. I mean, we showed it uh, with a live musical accompaniment here in Edinburgh in 2015 on Halloween. 
And so, the, you know, we're in a full house. A few hundred people have shown up to, to see the film. And the first chapter rolls. And you have the ones in the audience who have had a bit to drink before they've come in. And they're really here for a midnight movie, have a good time, uh, get a little drunk and rowdy. And by the end of the first chapter, they all walk out. And then you have the serious, you have the serious audience who sticks with it for the rest of the film. And it, it's it's a real, yeah, it, it kind of separates the wheat from the chaff here, you know? So. Well, it sort of comes in as a college lecture at the beginning. You know, it, there's a huge amount of, de- for a silent film, which of course it obviously is, the, the narration is huge in that first part. It's just, yeah. it's nothing but narration to a large extent, where obviously most silent films didn't have huge amounts of, narration because that would require a huge amount of reading on the part of the audience so you're sitting here watching that and as you point out you got the pointer and you've got the little parts that he illustrates in detail first he shows the whole image and then goes to each individual part in close-up and then with this long narration that you're reading along with i could imagine you saying am i just going to be sitting here reading an entire film for you know, two hours. Yes, sure. Yeah, that's that's precisely it. And I mean, you know, it's almost it's done in such a way. It is. Todd is right. I mean, it is really quite disorienting because the first time you see it, you you're not quite sure what he's up to. It it almost seems like a burlesque of science at that point. I mean, it's so out, outlandishly concerned with the the sort of the appearance of empirical veracity and and science. You know, it's. Um, it's it's hard to get a get a handle on just uh, what his position is in relation to to the science that he is also seemingly referring to and depicting because there's there is just a kind of burlesque quality almost I don't think that's intended uh, you know and I think that becomes clearer if you stick with the film and continue mm-hmm. but at first it just you just wonder you know is this surrealism before before they were making films you know this is a uh, 10 years prior to Buñuel's Land Without Bread, and yet it seems very similar. But I actually think they have very different aims in some sense. So, yeah. So let's, before we start, I want to talk about the book now in more detail. But before we get to that, I wanted to briefly, let's, I just want to discuss the concept of the word hysteria, which he used, you know, which we've pointed out is his overall point, that what was being called hysteria what what does he mean by hysteria as far as the modern time period in the 19 you know at the period he was making the film which of course was after just after world war 1 um and a number of other things going on so what is he bringing into his beliefs of, of when he talks about hysteria well it's i mean this is a curious topic actually i mean hysteria at the time of course is a catch all for any number of neuroses and he's, I mean, he's deriving his notion of hysteria very much from um, the Charcot's neurology clinics in Paris and the writings that, you know, influence, of course, Freud was one of, of Charcot's most famous students and, you know, really the writings and the people who were influenced by um, Charcot and how that notion of hysteria, especially in women, um, began to become popularized um, leaving the 19th century, beginning the 20th century. By the time 1922 rolls around, we know that after the second, after the First World War, <clears throat> there are other versions of hysteria which become quite important, um, especially in traumatized soldiers. So the shell shock sh- soldier is the is the hysteric, is uh, the male who's hysteric who has survived the war. Um, and yet, Christensen, is, that's completely off limits 
or at least outside of the purview of, of Christensen film, Christensen's film, he's really appealing to a very popularized um, and, and in some ways actually a little bit antiquated notion of hysteria uh, in the film, antiquated for 1922. Um, it's, I mean, his images, especially towards the end of the film, of the physician examining the patient, those would be very familiar to the audience that he was showing this to. This is not some scientific revelation of a new diagnostic category. This is something that has very much entered the the kind of popular culture and very much is part of a vocabulary by which people understand mental illness. Um, and so I think that's an important point because it's not so much that, that Christensen is necessarily, even as a trained physician who, you know, doesn't practice medicine, decides to become an opera singer, um, but, you know, as somebody who's very aware of the circulation of, of ideas in psychiatry and psychoanalysis, very early moments of psychoanalysis, um, he's aware of the reception already. And in some ways that clears a path for him to advance his thesis. So it's not so much that he's educating his audience about hysteria. It's that he, or, or any, any particular kind of neuroses, including senile dementia and all kinds of other things that kind of come in sort of on the periphery towards the end of the film. It's not that he's educating his, his viewers. It's that he's using ideas that they already are familiar with to then insert his thesis into that set of ideas. So hysteria is, is very important here. Now we write at the very end of the book about how um, male hysteria is off limits and it is a, it's a glaring omission. Um, the war is only mentioned one time um, in the film at all. And it's the, the woman who's the kleptomaniac at the end of the film, who's lost her husband to the war. And it's, um, you know, it's really just, I mean, it's just an aside. So, but that category of hysteria is so important, so central, but it's also so well known to the viewership. Yeah, that's basically, yeah, I don't really have much to add on that. That's, uh, that's, that's really what he's doing. And uh, the kind of, uh, you know, Christensen does, does go back and forth, uh, between, you know, having a very up-to-date and a, uh, a very acute grasp of all kinds of historical and scientific material. But he does, uh, when he needs to, he'll use a more popular idiom that might actually reflect an antiquated diagnosis. I mean, uh, and it was. I think Todd is even being a bit generous to say that it's, it's on the edge of uh, being antiquated. Because I think within, within the science of nervous illness... Um, you know, hysteria ha was was on on the wane, yeah. but but this is the way to speak to the audience, and there is there is uh, an aspiration to to bring this material to a popular audience. So this wasn't even though it starts out looking like a classroom film, it actually this was supposed to be a popular film, and it given its expense, uh, it, you know, it was supposed to make money and be seen by a lot of people. Now things turned out differently, but uh, I think that you know Christensen is making some. Um, some difficult decisions as to, you know, just how to, what idiom will, will get this to an audience uh, and, and to, and then to come back to his thesis about, you know, the witch and the power of the witch and try to get those sitting in the audience to actually take this quite seriously and to take their own uh, position seriously in relation to, if not the witch as it existed in the 16th century to other uh, quite unsettling and unexplained forces or persons or beings that might be present uh, to them. 
And I think that's really important to remember, given that we are coming out of the war. He makes no direct reference to the war, but I don't think a film like Hexen makes sense, um, you know, hadn't had the war not happened, if that if that's clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, people, people were asking a lot of quite profound existential almost questions about the nature of human life and human civilization that um, opens the door for a, a film like Hexen to actually pose uh, the big questions that I think it, it ultimately aspires to pose and does pose in my view, in our view, I think. Yeah. yeah I was going to say, Richard, I totally agree with your you. You totally agree. Well, thank you, Todd. Thank you. I mean, it, it's, it I is the, that out. it's, but it's the aftermath of the war. It's the rise of psychical research. Um, you know, the idea of spirit, you know, all of this, all these sort of popular developments, of spiritualism, which of contacting the the dead, the the family members who were lost. I mean, there there is this there there's this very fertile ground for Christensen's film. Um, but I want to say just one last thing about his relationship to to psychiatry. Um, I mean, this is where Christensen as a as a figure is so it so dominates his film. He doesn't recede to the background. He's not the film doesn't the film of course stands on its own, but he's so he's so bound up with this film. I mean, he's not just using Charcot's photographs uh, or the writings of Charcot's students. And in particular, Bonneville, who edited this long series, this Biblio, uh, Bibliothèque uh, Diabolique, which had all of these um, meditations on um, early modern images of witchcraft and their relationship to contemporary hysteria. I mean, he was... He was a student of Charcot in his own way. He knew all of these guys in Paris. And so he, I, his, his, his animation, his taking up the category of hysteria is in some way is so, it's also so precise and so masterful because he really does know that domain inside and out. And I think that's, that's why, I mean, that's why in, in some ways the film is so powerful because he's not just talking from the periphery. He's really at the center of a lot of these conversations. Now, I don't know what his relationship to psychical research was necessarily. I mean, he read all of those people, especially the Americans. Um, so he was, I think, very aware of that literature that was, you know, contemporary to his time. I mean, it was things that were being published, you know, just in the, in the moments before he begins filmmaking. Um, but he, he has an acute awareness of that literature, but I don't know how bound up he was or how, um, how well he knew the people who were producing that literature and who were part of those societies. But I, he certainly had a had very, very deep roots in especially Parisian um, um, psychiatry, which is well, curious. As somebody who teaches history, when I, I know I've always said to students, you always have to consider the history. When you're considering history of an event or a time period, you have to look at how it was being considered at the time. You can't make judgments based on current events to, to make a judgment for the past. And we know the period after the First World War was an incredibly scary time for a lot of people between sure. the economy, but then the psychological aspect. And there's a lot of material that came out of the post-World War I period, and both artistically and in other ways, that, that just shows how it, the war affected people. And given that uh, both in Europe and the United States, everywhere, because it was just so massive and what it did to people. 
and that and even though you're right he does he barely mentions world war one you can the more you know about that period the more what he did makes so much sense well that also i mean it, it's one of those things where you know when you realize that the film was censored or banned in different places you you kind of have to question like what what were people's sensitivities in europe i mean you know you have not just the war but then you have the influenza outbreak you have just death death abounds and yet his film is being banned for its 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 uh well well we can talk about this specifically yes, it was i don't know it depends on the country but quite often in europe it was banned uh, for banned or heavily censored for what was phrased as outrages against religion, which I thought yes, outrages against religion. a really interesting phrase, you know, in, in the United States, it tended to be not shown at all because of the, the nudity and, and the implied uh, or shown uh, sexual dimensions to forming a pact with Satan, uh, which was essential to his evidence as well. Right. That this is what made it sensual and real. Um, so the Americans were worried about sex and, um, the Europeans were worried about affronts to religion. Go figure, right? But the, there you go. Let's let's talk about the, all the, the reactions to the film, is because that's where we've been sort of walking around in this last couple of minutes. Um, obviously, could we ever? Obviously, the word success does not necessarily go along with this film. It was not a success when it was released, right? Well, not a not a financial success. That's no. Sure. <laughs> No. <laughs> so, but did he, were there people who saw the film and actually uh, gave him credit for what he was doing, for what he did? Well, well I mean, yes. Uh, you know, the film was seen, certainly, um, it was seen relatively unchanged and unmolested in Scandinavian countries. And there were, you know, there were reviews. And I think that actually the, the box office there wasn't, wasn't terrible, but when it starts to, to go outside, that's when, you know, it starts to run into to certain kinds of problems. And um, so, you know, there are reviews and a little bit of some critical commentary, which we do make reference to uh, a bit in the, in the book. Um, and of course it was seen by industry professionals. So Louis B. Mayer sees the film and says, this man's either a genius or he's crazy. Uh, and Can Mayor, be bet, both? Uh, well, you know, Mayor bet on one or the other. I'm not sure, but he did get a contract to go to Hollywood, and so it did. It did provide him the opportunity to come to the United States to make films, which did not turn out very well. He wasn't, you know, Benjamin Christensen was not particularly well suited to a, a studio system as it existed in America, uh, and so that wasn't necessarily a success, but it did open opportunities for him. So the film. You know, it's it's not like it was completely suppressed or uh, or completely unknown, but it did kind of come and go without really. I I would say, uh, based on the evidence that that we could look at, um, it it was it wasn't really received in the manner that Christensen wanted it to be received. Not only in terms of, of a popular audience, but even in terms of uh, an understanding or an interpretation of witchcraft or the subjects at hand. Um, it is re-released in Scandinavia, in Denmark, at least in 1941, and uh, Christensen provides a, a fascinating kind of spoken introduction to the film where he talks about his aspirations and so on. Um, doesn't really refer to it as a failure, but you can see that he's he's still even 20 plus years or nearly 20 years later, still 
trying to get it, get that point across. Um, but no, I wouldn't say I, I don't know. But as Walter Benjamin said, I mean, nothing is ever lost to history. And so I think the success or failure of the film on these terms is still to be seen in a weird sort of way. Uh, that's part of the reason why we did write the book. Um, not, not as a, you know, a sort of noble act of recovery, but just, uh, you know, to step into a place to say some things uh, that had yet to be said. And actually the film invites uh, that kind of engagement. So um, it's, it's life as, as a work in, in the public domain is, is really very strange. And we also have the very strange diversion, I would say, in the 1960s, where uh, the film basically is recut given a free jazz score and some intonations from William S. Burroughs, the intonations are great. The free jazz is not. And it becomes a kind of midnight movie uh, where people go. And again, they try to have a good time. And, and I suspect don't have as good a time as they think they're going to have, um, you know, in midnight cinemas of the late sixties and early seventies. So um, success, that's a difficult one to kind of assess. I mean, financially it was a disaster, uh, but as a as a work available to us, I think uh, this is actually still an open question, uh, which is what's exciting about engaging with it. I think part of the fact that we're still talking about it does, uh, as you point out, make it successful. It's still something worth considering, and it's still being viewed, which is a great thing. Uh, we, Like I say, we haven't really been talking about the book per se, but we've been talking around everything related in the book, so I don't want it to seem like we're not talking about the book. Because uh, clearly, what we, everything you've talked about, the two of you have talked about so far, have been related to what you wrote about. I mean, well, sure, it's what you say in the book, yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the nice thing is, and I, that's why I think the in, any good book, as far as I'm concerned, the introduction is so important. Because it lays out, you know, like Christensen, we consider your introduction to be the first section. You're explaining everything, what you're going to be talking about, and then you go on to do it. Um, that introduction, which gives the background of the film and his background, which is so great. And then you get into some of the things like his, the evidence he portrays, you know, what he used for his evidence and, and really lays out very nicely all the evidence and the material that he reviewed in order to create the film. And you've got some interesting images that are also used in the film, which uh, I think does a great job of, of continuing to show what your points were concerning what he did with the film. Um, as far as how long did the book take for you to, to write? Obviously, as you pointed out, this is something that you've been dealing with for a long period of time. So as a topic, as a topic, this film, but how long have you really worked on this project? Ooh, or, I guess or we, depends. Or, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were you afraid of? I mean, because because uh, we saw the film years ago. Uh, and kind of instantly were drawn in. It's not like we saw it and, and knew that day that we would be writing a book about it, but it would just never sort of leave us alone. Uh, and we came around to to do the to do the work. I, I, gosh, Todd, I don't know what what would you say? Did it take or, us a year or? Well, I mean, I think it it. I would probably say that it took us three or four years to do. I mean, the bulk, see, one thing that, so I was living in Detroit when we were doing most of the writing for the book and Richard was already in Edinburgh. Um, and we had been sketching things out, collecting materials, you know, watching the film obsessively talking over Skype and over telephone, um, you know, consulting with our 
the third member of our posse, Stefanos Guerlanos at NYU, who we do a lot of writing with in different capacities and a lot of thinking with. Um, but we had been really building up our own archive and, and also, you know, trying to, it's not, it, it wasn't that difficult to understand Christensen's project because we were doing something similar. We were really making an effort to collect all the materials that he cites, including material that would support that material. So doing that one extra step of trying to build our own sort of bibliography or inventory of, of research for each of these chapters. I would say that that process took a couple years. Mm. And then <clears throat> Richard and I were able to spend a week together um, at uh, this how would you describe it, Richard? Like an artist? Oh, it's, yeah, it's like a. Um, I don't know. We we had a residency at a at a at an arts retreat. I guess you could say. I mean, it's a uh, in rural Scotland, uh, a place called Cove Park, which uh, supported us uh, in going and basically living on site, engaging with some of the other artists there. Which is kind of the idea, you know, they're artists in residence who then uh, communicate with one another and kind of you know just uh, create uh, ideas together, I guess, uh, work on working on their own stuff, but being stimulated by other creative people around them. And they don't normally do this for, for academic writers, but we were able to, in this case, go, go up there and just, yeah, I don't, other than a few walks around, I mean, we really just sort of uh, stayed in, in the flat they gave us and just, just wrote together for 18 Christian. hours a day kind of thing. So Christensen's film is divided into these seven chapters. The book is divided into these seven chapters. We had seven full days to work on bringing together all of our source material. The first day when we got there, this doesn't count as part of the seven days, we drove a truck into town. I think we, we banged it up pretty good um, getting back and forth to town on winding Scottish roads. Then we had our all of our food in the house, a couple bottles of wine, and then we had this task of churning out a draft of each chapter a day. And it was, I mean, it was a 10 hour day, 12 hour day, and there was no internet. And so we just sat and we, we just wrote and there's nothing more hellish than actually having that much uninterrupted time every day. It's beautiful and a horrible burden at the same time. And, but we churned out seven chapters in a week um, obviously having done all of the research and compiling things ahead of time. Um, but it was our, as our, it was our one opportunity to sit down and be in the same room together, um, and, and to write together. And I think that that was a really major part of, of the book coming together. Um, it, it is the kind of book that is a sustained conversation between the two of us about the film and about the material. And I think without the opportunity to actually have it that real conversation in a sustained way. I don't think the book would have taken the form it did. Now, of course, then we spent the next year and a half editing, revising, taking in other people's edits, et cetera, et cetera. It was, been, it was a long process, but those seven days were really, you know, I think Richard and I have a new book project that we're, you know, working on this finishing the summer. And I mean, I think it's going to be the same thing. We're scheming already to be in the same room for an extended period of time just to, have that luxury of, of 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 time together to write, which it seems like such a banal thing to say, but in fact, actually, it's well, it's, but it, it's yeah, you know, I think it was important, you know, not only to to bring the project together, but also, I mean, it is, you know, I'm often 
asked about this by by colleagues or or someone who's run across the book and they say gosh you know how how is it that you and Todd were able to do this because it seems like a single voice and the reason it seems like a single voice is because we do come together like this and and craft I think not only the the project and the argument and everything that a book needs to be but also a voice for the book which is not precisely the same as my individual authorial voice and it's not precisely the same as Todd's you know writing voice but it is it is related to both and it's ours and i think that you know we just we have an intense period of time where where we fashion our voice and and that so that's that's what was kind of crucial to the whole thing so i don't know it's it's kind of a yeah actually being asked that question i have to think really hard about the the sort of timelines of things because on the one hand parts of it came together so intensely and so quickly and other parts of it were really like christensen's own process very long periods of working with the materials or just thinking and obsessing and stewing about the film. Uh, so I could say that, you know, it, it took us a week or it took us a year or we worked on this for 10 years and all of these answers could and be defended <laughs> as correct. But uh, yeah, but it, it was, it was definitely, yeah. Um, Sounds like know. true obsession. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you don't remember what it was like when you weren't living with it. <laughs> well, exactly. That's right. <laughs> it's interesting. We talk about. We, I asked the question earlier about success. The funny part about we said yes. It's it, we can call it successful on an artistic level and a lot of other levels. Fact of the matter is, it's successful because it's a film from that period that is still in existence. As we know, a lot of films from that period of time uh, have long since disappeared the fact that it still exists is a great thing and in fact that it's available for purchase on you know criterion has an edition that not only has the film but it's also got the the uh the 1941 introduction is included on there as is the uh 1968 jazz version is available on the same dvd <laughs> so right. somebody who wants to really study it the way you folks did that instead of reading your book instead of not instead excuse me in addition to reading your book they can do the studying themselves. It's all included on the DVD. It's available for purchase on iTunes. It's available for yeah. streaming. And so really, it was successful because we can still study it ourselves and look at it and see what he, was, what he, would, what he did. Uh, yeah, I, I think that's certainly the case. And I think it's, you know, it's, its argument itself is also successful in some ways on its own terms because it, it does allow us to think about certain elements of the present uh in in critical ways that we wouldn't have thought of or thought about if we hadn't actually seen the film and that might pertain to phenomenon like witchcraft which does still exist in most parts of the world today uh but also just uh you know about what the power of the witch was in the first place uh which say i don't know in europe or in america we wouldn't necessarily attach to the figure of the witch anymore but there are those out beyond the pale, out of bounds, highly dangerous and and uh, mysterious beings that uh, seem to come into our lives, threaten us, shape our lives, that kind of thing. So I actually do think that it's it does have a success in that in that way as well. Um, maybe people don't always see it at first, but that that's another reason why we we wrote the book because it's hard to get a grasp, even having seen the film once or twice, just what's going on in it. And hopefully this does lead people, you know, the book does lead people to the film. Uh, and hopefully they, they do, you know, 
have the book handy as they watch the film. That's a little scary because they can they can look at every single interpretation we make and say, oh, <laughs> I agree with that or I don't agree with that. I mean, you know, it's a pretty exposed sort of a way to work um, in, in some ways, but that's fine. Uh, you know, it, I just I think that we both uh, just sort of envisioned it that way, you know. Well, nowadays there is hysteria in a variety of ways, and so frankly, the concepts of even though we we don't usually blame them on witchcraft anymore, there is still the same concept that we can often find real realism, real reality. Excuse me, why I can't get that word out? Reality to prove where the hysteria is actually coming from. But uh, that's where I once again believe that this film was. A, we'll use the phrase ahead of its time in that sense of of being able to lay out a, a thesis in a logical way, but in an artistic way as well. Mm. Well, sure. And I, I don't know. I'm sorry, Todd, I'm doing all the talking here at this point, but I'll get, I'll get, I'll get this point out. I, I actually, both of us, we really hope that our colleagues in anthropology and others in the social sciences or the, the sort of human sciences, as they used to be called, also kind of have a look at this because it is also an account of, uh, disciplines like ours in its own way. We do try to draw the film into conversation with the disciplines that it draws upon to formulate its original thesis uh, and then extend that a little bit further. I mean, there, there are certain parallels in not only how Christensen went about his work and how someone like me or like Todd would go about their work. You, you know, maybe the fieldwork part of that is not quite right, but in more general terms, I think that there is a parallel to be drawn, but also just looking at how witch hunters and, you know, inquisitors of the 16th century could actually formulate tests and credible evidence out of something like testimony, for example, which was something quite new at the time. Uh, you didn't necessarily uh, prove or disprove uh, the, the truth of something through what just a regular person was saying about it. This uh, this is introduced in this in this period and in this context. And so, looking at a at a text like the Malleus Maleficarum, and then looking at something like Malinowski's Argonauts of the Western Pacific, and seeing certain uncomfortable parallels between the two, I think is a story that we also want to tell. So we're telling a story not only about the witch and about hysteria, but also about how it is that an anthropologist or a social scientist somebody in the humanities or even a natural scientist if we want to extend this how we make truth how we make an argument how we apprehend and grasp the world and say something or express something about it and i think that that's a very complicated story that christensen doesn't solve but actually gives us a very interesting example of how it how it happened and how in in the context of how his own work exists how he went about that so there's there is a i wouldn't say it's a disciplinary history but it is there are there is a history of certain kinds of concepts and practices that um, that I would I would argue and I think we both argue in the book are extremely relevant for anthropologists or others who do work like this. Just knowing the the, his, the history of knowledge um, uh, and the history of how we go about our business of saying something uh, truthful or meaningful about the world. Um, and I think that's very strong in the film, and, and we really try to bring that out in the book as well. I'll just I'll just add one thing. <clears throat> the working title for the book was "Evidence of Forces Unseen," and it was that that framing of the of the film and of our own sort of engagement with the 
the literatures and disciplines that surround the film. And that really was the framework that we were operating within, which is, you know, what is it about evidence? What is it, what is it about, what is it about securing evidence in this film that's so important? And how does that extend into even more contemporary conversations? Well, I think we could probably talk for a lot longer. We've already gone over well over an hour, so that which is great. I mean, I'm hoping right. that uh, I know sometimes length is not always uh, that's quantity over quality, but I think we got quality. So I think it's a good point to sort of leave it. Um, I still have other questions I could ask, but I think it's a good point to to stop only because I think we've done a great job of exp- not only showing what you you presented in the book but also hopefully bringing the film to a whole new audience of people who may have heard of it never watched it or maybe just first heard of it by this this interview and hopefully it will continue to to be the relevant um film both of the period and of the genre of of and and of the artistic uh material that it is well Thank you very much for giving us the opportunity to talk about it. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's always great to not only talk about something we did together, but to to engage, continue to engage with the film. So thanks very much, Joel. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate really both are. of your time. So thanks a lot. And uh, I'm glad we were able to get this to talk about this. Yeah, thank you. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. In addition to reading the book, I hope that you watch the film Hexen. I think you'll find the combination of the two to be very enlightening. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more new books in film.